I am Linus Torvaldis and I pronounce Linux Linux. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 54 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Tim Caswell. Hello. Jameson Dance. Hi guys. Joe Eames. Hey there. Merrick Christensen. Hey guys, what's up? I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and we have two special guests this week. Uh, we have Dave Herman. Hey there. And Arya Hidayat. Hello, everyone. And uh, these guys are so smart that we brought them back. So uh, if you're interested, we'll put links to the episodes that they were on. Um, David was on when we talked about his book, uh, Essential JavaScript. And Aria was on when we talked about Phantom Effective JS. Effective JavaScript. Effective JavaScript, yeah. Effective? What did I say? Essential. Essential. Well, it's an essential book on effective JavaScript. How's that? <laughs> Good, say. Good, Good recovery. Say. <laughs> At least you didn't say defective JavaScript. No, that's what I write. I'm really good at writing defective JavaScript. Um, it would be nice if there's a, there's a book about essential on defective JavaScript. Yeah, I, al- <laughs> I also want to announce really quickly that um, uh, FluentConf has given us a discount code. So uh, if you want to get 20% off your registration for FluentConf, just enter uh, JavaJab, that's J-A-V-A-J-A-B, and you'll get 20% off when you register for FluentConf. All right, well, let's get started. This is going to be a really, really interesting topic, and it's something that I've wanted to know more about for a long time, and I just haven't delved as deeply into it as I would like to. And that is, uh, we're talking about parsing JavaScript and uh, ASTs and language grammars. So, do one of you guys want to actually explain what all of that means? Mm, Aria, do you want to give it a try? Uh, I think you should go first, Dave. I should go first? Uh... All right, let's see. So uh, we're all programmers. We've all seen what source code looks like, but of course, usually source code is just represented as this big flat string, just a, a sequence of characters. So parsing is kind of the the, the first step necessary to uh, being able to for a computer to be able to do anything with your code. So uh, you know, it starts with this big string, and somehow it has to figure out well, what does this string mean, and what am I supposed to do with it? Um, so before it starts actually trying to, to do anything with it, the first thing it needs to do is just try to figure out what the structure of, of the program is, just figure out all of its component parts. And basically it just converts it from a string into a data structure that's easier to write code over. It's easier for a program to, to deal with. So parsing is, is that process of taking a, a string that represents some sort of input format uh, some sort of language or format, and turning it into a data structure. Language grammars, the, the other half of the, the title of the, sh- of the show, that's sort of a way of specifying the particular format of some syntax or another. So each language has its own format, um, and uh, somehow you need a way of saying, these are the, the possible uh, things that you can say in this format, and this is what they're supposed to look like. So a grammar is a way of really precisely saying this is exactly what uh, the syntax looks like for this particular language. 
And then it turns out that the two connect to each other because uh, grammars are so uh, nice and precise that it turns out you can build tools that automatically take one of those grammars and just spit out a parser for you automatically so you don't actually have to implement the parser by hand. And there's many, many, many years of, of uh, research that went into making that work, but that's actually pretty stable research. That was done back in like the, I think it started in the 60s. Uh, I think it really started uh, getting stable in the 70s. And by the 80s, it was sort of seen as a, uh, a pretty well well solved problem. So um, so grammars are this nice way of of describing a syntax. Parsers are a nice way of recognizing recognizing a syntax and turning it into a data structure. And then there's these things called parser generators that can take a grammar and give you a parser. Does that make so sense? you talked. To, I think that makes tons of sense. You talked about how you use a grammar to describe the syntax. Where do the semantics come from? So that's just like saying what. What are legal strings in your programming language, basically, right? Mm -hmm. So, what what actually gives those meanings? Uh, depending on who you ask, uh, it, 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 well, so in my personal opinion, that's where the real fun begins in programming languages. Once you get past the syntax and start talking about um, what the what the meaning or the behavior of programs are supposed to be, um, I'm not sure how much we want to actually get into that in this in this particular episode since we're we're. Um, talking about syntax, but semantics is kind of what happens after you've got that data structure, uh, which is known as an abstract syntax tree. Uh, once you once you've done the parsing, now the now the real fun begins because you actually have to do something with this data structure. And um, uh, if you're talking about like a language interpreter, uh, it's supposed to run the program, uh, or if you're talking about a compiler, it's supposed to translate that program to another language. Uh, and uh, semantics is the way that we specify. Uh, what the correct behavior is or what the correct translation would be for a compiler. Um, and there's a ton of different ways of, of specifying semantics. And uh, uh, that, that's when kind of the, the real deep, hairy uh, uh, language research kind of kicks in. So we've mentioned it a few times, but can you explain what an abstract syntax tree actually is? An abstract syntax tree... Uh, is that data structure that, that spits out the other end of, of a parser. Um, so it's known as abstract because, uh, you can think of the, 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 the actual syntax that's in, in the string as being the concrete syntax for the language. That's, that's really what it looks like to us as people, uh, as humans. But, um, the, the computer doesn't really care. Did you spell function F-U-N-C-T-I-O-N or did you spell it F-U-N or did you spell it Lambda? You know, different languages have different ways of spelling these things, but you can think of those as just kind of skins. This sort of the user interface for programmers. Uh, and humans are the only ones who really care about that. But abstractly underneath, you just sort of have this data structure that says, well, this is a function and it's got so many arguments and it's got a body and stuff like that. Um, but, once you're down at that data structure, you don't really care uh, how specifically it was spelled in the string. So the, the easiest way to uh, understand the ab abstract syntax tree of a JavaScript code is by using the Esprima parser demo. Um, so I build this, and it shows exactly the tree of your code. So if, for example, I have a code called answers equal 42, then it'll say that, hey, there's an assignment expression and on the left side is an identifier called answer. On the right side is a literal 42. That's awesome. I'm going to send the link later on for the uh, parser demo. Yeah, that's great. I think it's it's hard um, just from talking to get a, a good feel for what 
the differences between concrete syntax and abstract syntax, but it really helps to look at examples and um, Aria's web page is a really great way to just play around with, okay, here's some concrete JavaScript syntax and what does it look like as an abstract syntax tree? So have the various JavaScript parsers pretty much standardized on this AST format for JavaScript? Or is that still... So they, all, they all have different formats. Uh, if you talk about particular JavaScript engine, I think uh, it it follows internally on how the engine itself is written, or rather the parser portion of the engine. So Dave came up with this uh, idea of sort of nice AST that was implemented in SpiderMonkey uh, as a form, as a reflection, I believe. Is that correct, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I basically took the parser that that existed in SpiderMonkey and just provided a JavaScript API that that spat out the results of it so that you could, uh, which was a kind of reflection, so that you could uh, reuse the SpiderMonkey parser in JavaScript itself so that you could take in a string and get out an abstract syntax tree. And SpiderMonkey is the JavaScript engine for Mozilla? That's right. That's right. It's the one that, that ships in Firefox. Is there Are, are there other uh, ways of seeing what the parser is doing in some of the other ones, like Chrome or Safari or IE? I don't think so, unless you're willing to like dive into a, a C++ debugger and and <laughs> and and peek under the hood. But um, I don't think any of the other engines expose their parser to JavaScript. So I think even for the case of SpiderMonkey, uh, Reflect is not exposed in normal code, right? Well, it's I mean it's perfectly safe. Like basically, what it does is it it runs the internal parser, but then it takes the the internal C++ data structure that would be unsafe. And mm-hmm. copies it into a safe JavaScript object, so it's there's there's no security risks there. Um, uh, but it actually is using the internal parser to parse the source code. Is this like exposed in Firefox to normal web pages, or do you have to have a special add-on? Uh, it's exposed to add-ons. It's exposed to the uh, um, the browser Chrome, but it's not exposed to web content. Okay, so extensions can see it. Yeah. So you can type reflect.parse and then your JavaScript code and then it will speed out the tree. But anyone can run a Sprema because that's just written in JavaScript. Yes, that was the original idea. So I tried to implement the same uh, parser API in uh, WebKit through its JavaScript core. It turned out to be quite hairy because if you try to match one JavaScript engine parser format to another, that is not so easy. That was a difficult process. So, can you guys explain, you touched on the parser piece, and I usually hear another word when that comes along, which is lexer. Uh, does lexer typically come before uh, parser, and can you guys touch on what that what that is? Yeah, I'm happy to answer that. Um, so, uh, most programming languages will typically divide up this process that goes from the source string into an AST into kind of t- two parts. And, and like you said, the first one is, is the lexer. Um, the lexer is kind of like like a mini parser. It's, it's doing less work than the parser is, but what it's doing is it's, it's taking this, this string of characters and actually recognizing kind of the little component chunks. You can think of it sort of if, as an analogy in, in human language, you can think of it as the thing that tells you what the words are, and then the parser tells you how the words come together to, to build sentences. So okay. the lexer is going to say things like, oh, you, you wrote obj.foo, uh, that's really three what what they call tokens, or you can think of it sort of like words. Uh, the first one is obj, which is an identifier. The second one is dot, which is a special um, symbol in, in JavaScript that has special meaning by itself. And then the third one is another identifier, foo. 
So the, the lexer is just going to say, I have three tokens. I see three tokens here, obj, dot, and foo. And then the parser is going to say, oh, when I have identifier, dot, identifier, that actually represents uh, a property selection for my object. And so it'll build an AST node, an abstract syntax tree node, uh, that represents that structure. So it's awesome. actually possible for some languages not to have a lexer, but it's it's rare. Usually that's that's a good way to divide up the work. Okay. So let's say that I want to write my own language, and I'm going to be real creative, and I'm going to say, I'm going to call it Blavascript. And, uh, <laughs> and anyway, so... From Transylvania. Yeah, and I I, uh, I want to... What, how would I go about that? Would I just define my own grammar and then, you know, use that to build the parser? So I can I can share how I wrote the CoffeeScript parser if that's useful. Okay. So I was I was working with Jeremy years ago and he had an existing CoffeeScript parser written in Ruby using some parser generator in Ruby. Uh-huh. And the the CoffeeScript syntax is actually rather I think it's context sensitive. I don't think it's possible to properly explain it using one of the formal grammars. And so I think what we did is we hand wrote a lexer using regular expressions. That just broke up the string into various tokens. You should define then, context sensitive. Um, a type. Nah, I know. We'll get into that later. <laughs> no, there, I won't. But there, it. but there, there are many different classes of grammars, and I mean, so you have a regular expression, which is a actually a family of grammars, and I'm sure Dave can explain it much better than I can. But the the context sensitive ones are much harder to do. They most I don't know of any parser generator that supports those, at least not efficiently. I think a loose analogy would, would be like a human language where different words can different have different meanings. Even a full complete sentence under different contexts can give you a, a totally opposite meaning. So it's right. kind of like you can't just read the word in abstract. You have to read it in the context of the sentence to know what it means. Yeah, right. right. And, and all parsers need some context. Like, what does this dot token even mean? Well, in JavaScript, well, dot's actually not that ambiguous, but there, there are other ones. Well, the, you could put a dot inside of a string literal, for example, and that's a different context where dot means something very different. That's or true, but the, but the lexer would probably catch those. Right, right. Yep, or decimal numbers. But, like, I mean, there, there are various, like, the, the square brackets, for example. When I was designing my Jack language, there are only so many symbols on the keyboard. JavaScript overloads, and most languages overload. Square can be property access, or it can be an array literal. Mm-hmm. And depending on what it means is, well, how is it used in the, in the syntax? The classic example in JavaScript is a forward slash because it c- can start a regular expression, but in some cases it's actually a, an operator. Yeah, that's oh, a fun yeah. one. And that, that would be one I would try to get the lexer to do, but then I don't know, that's hard because then you have to backtrack in your lexer and the certain languages are harder to write parsers for. And, and CoffeeScript is one of those harder ones. And so when you're, when you're designing your language, if you have the freedom to design the syntax, if you want to make your life easy on you, right, design a syntax that's not ambiguous. But those aren't always the easier to use languages. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So this is one of the classic trade-offs when you're, when you're trying to, so this kind of gets back to, uh, I think it was Charles who asked the question of if I wanted to design my own language, how would I go about, uh, coming up with a syntax and coming up with a parser? Uh, and that's, that's actually a really subtle design question. And, and one of the trade-offs that Tim is getting at is you, you can sort of design the, the grammar of the language to be simpler for algorithms to parse, or you could design it that, so that it sort of 
more pleasant for humans to look at and easier for them to read. And it turns out that humans are a lot messier than, than computers. So our tastes often run in directions that go completely at odds with what algorithms would really like to see. And so, you know, overloading is a great example of where, okay, humans are really comfortable with brackets meaning different things in different contexts, but that makes the algorithm much trickier because now it has to use additional contextual information to figure out exactly what it's looking at at various points. Um, and so some languages have really gone sort of hog wild with uh, context sensitivity. Uh, one of the great examples is the C programming language where you can't even <laughs> tell like what basic kind of token you're looking at without knowing the full scope of the program and all of the type definitions in the program, basically due to like really fiddly details in the way they design the grammar. And so, you know, this, that has trade-offs. Like on the one hand, people like looking at the C syntax and they, they find that, um, you know, they, they find that ambiguity not a problem for themselves and it reads nicely for them. On the other hand, because it's so much harder to write the tools, it's actually pretty uncommon for people to go and write a new C parser because it's so incredibly hard to write a C parser. Uh, on top of that, all of those parser generators we were talking about, which can take a grammar and automatically spit out a parser so you don't have to write it by hand, it's pretty much impossible for any of them to generate uh, a C parser automatically, so you end up having to write it by hand. So in practice, all of the C parsers are, are handwritten. Pretty similar with JavaScript because of that ambiguity with the slash, sim with the slash character. It's, it's pretty hard to use a parser generator to automatically give you a, a JavaScript parser. So people end up having to write it by hand, which means that it takes really smart people like Aria to actually build a JavaScript parser and, and, you know, they don't, they don't come by every day. Um, so, so it's, it's, it's a tough trade off. So, so that, this leads me to, to two things. First off, you said that humans are messier than computers and I have four kids and three computers and I have to agree. <laughs> the, 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 the second thing is, is that, is it an all-or-nothing proposition to use a parser generator, or can you use it to get you most of the way there and then kind of deal with the ambiguities on on a one-by-one -one basis? So that's that's what I was about to talk about with with CoffeeScript. You can't actually do the grammar using JSON, which is the parser generator we used, mm -hmm. because it's just not possible. So Jeremy's idea was he added a layer between the lexer and the parser that rearranges the tokens. That gets rid of the ambiguities, so, so that's, kind of he that kind of massages also, it manually. Yep. So that was also my first approach uh, to build JavaScript parser in JavaScript, meaning using a hybrid approach. Some parts is generated by some parser generator, and then I try to work run some problem some problem by manually writing some code. But it turned out for JavaScript, you end up uh, writing so much code that it doesn't really make sense to 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 keep the generated code from the parser generator anymore. And that's how I end up with this Prima. So in some yeah, cases, uh, some cases, if you describe uh, a grammar for, say, a while statement, uh, the grammar for the while statement looks pretty clear. And if you look, if you go to the code, sometimes the code is messier. But at some point, you realize that oh, by just looking at how while statement parsing is implemented, it's it's not much more difficult, and therefore you just you know dumb the grammar uh, and and not, there's no need to feed it to the parser generator to generate the parser anymore. Because if you code it carefully, the code, the parser code itself is, is understandable enough. I don't know if that makes sense there. Oh, yeah, that makes yeah, sense. I think basically what you're saying is that because the grammar is a pretty clear specification, it's not that hard to just follow it by hand and write the code right, yourself. Right. 
Right. Yeah. And and another thing is that people often find that uh, when they write it themselves, they can start to hand optimize it. And parsers tend to be one of those things where uh, it doesn't change very often because you don't change the syntax. So once you kind of get it working, then you can go and start optimizing it to try to get better performance out of it and mm -hmm. not have to worry about your optimizations needing to be undone in the future because you're not going to be changing the syntax anyway. So when you have like production quality JavaScript parsers, for example, there were, there were, there were some, I believe, historically in the production JavaScript engines that used parser generators originally, but then as performance became more and more competitive in JavaScript engines, they pretty much all ended up uh, handwriting their parsers so that they could hand optimize them. Yeah, an, an example would be JavaScript Core, which is the JavaScript engine in WebKit. It was originally derived from KGS, from KDE, and KGS grammar is described uh, for bisons, I believe, and then it's generated to C, and then we have to bind it to C++. So there's a bunch of layers there, and you still need to implement some native C++ code to work around some parsing problem. A semicolon, for example, <laughs> automatic semicolon insertion that requires <laughs> <laughs> workarounds almost everywhere. It just doesn't make sense to 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 keep the old generated code. So that that kind of leads into the next question, and that is, as the um, the spe specification changes for JavaScript, I mean, some of these is just you're essentially adding new tokens or adding new you know functions to to your list of things that JavaScript can do. And in some cases, like the semicolon injection stuff, you know, it it kind of touches everything. So, yeah. <laughs> what, what 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 are the trade-offs? I mean, you know, if if you have a, a a parser that you've been able to just generate, and then they introduce you know some kind of breaking change, I mean, are you back to square square one or square zero? Or well, the the the. Bottom line, like number one ground rule is you're not allowed to make breaking changes except in extremely uh, uh, corner, it, like in extreme corner cases where you think no code will actually be affected by it. But th this is one of the really tricky things about migrating a syntax about uh, or evolving a syntax is it's really easy to accidentally add something that breaks the rest of the language. It could either break uh, backwards compatibility or it could introduce an ambiguity where there might be two possible ways to understand some piece of syntax, and that's one of the worst kinds of bugs when you're designing a, a syntax, because now it's totally unclear what the behavior of the program should be, because the syntax could actually mean two totally separate things. And so uh, one of the nice things about parser generators is even if you don't use them in production, if you run a grammar through a parser generator and it succeeds at providing you with a parser on the other end, then uh, unless it's some strange esoteric parser generator that can handle uh, ambiguous grammars, which is th those are rare. M most parser generators will will fail if there's an ambiguity. So that's actually a way to to tell. Okay, we we definitely have an unambiguous grammar. There's no possible string of characters that could be interpreted in two contradictory ways. Um, but it's 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 really surprisingly tricky. And ASI is one of the worst ones. Automatic semicolon insertion is one of the worst ones. Actually, it's probably a good moment for a, a public service announcement. Uh, when you design your next programming language, please don't use automatic semicolon insertion. <laughs> it's just more trouble than it's yeah. worth. It's gonna don't worry, I'm not. A, a really difficult uh, language to parse, but on top of that, it's going to lead to endless Twitter wars between people arguing about whether they should use it or not. So just don't bother. So I think so Dave has it, but they're, okay. you're not supposed to put them in your actual like written code. It just adds them for you when it compiles. There's something weird about it with Golang. 
Go. But they avoid the um, debate. Yeah, don't they? Go actually has similar problems. They chose different policies to JavaScript. I could be wrong about this. I'm not an expert at Go, but uh, from what I understand, they actually have some similar kind of hazards to to JavaScript. Where, um, like in JavaScript, if you say return and then an expression, but you put a new line in between them, famous famous uh, hazard, uh, where you think that's a return with an argument, but it actually gets a semicolon inserted. I think in Go, people will have to correct me after the show if I got this wrong, but if you do like a function call where the function returns another function and you want to call that again, so like f, left paren, right paren, oh, left sure. paren, right paren, if you put that second pair of parens on the next line, I think it actually inserts a semicolon between them. Uh, so that's different from JavaScript, which doesn't insert a semicolon, but, uh, but, but that's sort of a similar hazard. So, in my opinion, semicolon insertion ends up being kind of too hazardous. Uh, I think you can you can introduce syntaxes where they're not based on semicolons, but there aren't these kinds of ambiguities. Or uh, it's not exactly an ambiguity, but it's just a uh, a human confusion, an easy confusion for humans. Um, but doing it through automatic insertion of semicolons just seems like it's always more trouble than it's worth. So, because yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, you usually cannot figure out the automatic semicolon insertion rules, so I always joke around that it's called semi-automatic semicolon insertion. <laughs> <laughs> it's a semi-automatic weapon. That's right. You can pull the trigger as many times as you want, and it'll keep shooting until you're out of bullets. <laughs> so it doesn't correlate to what you think it's doing. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so Dave, syntax change again. Uh, for example, uh, uh, that that syntax change that Dave mentioned that. You know, sometimes you, you don't need to tweak the syntax very much, or you just pass it to the parser generator. But there's also syntax changes that call, will cause major uh, disaster. For example, one of the nice things about C is you cannot have nested function. They cannot be function inside a function. So if the next version of C language, you know, let's change the syntax so you can have nested function, that will be just nightmare. Mm. What are I some of the problems that it's going to cause for C? Syntactic. Well, I mean, you, you need to understand and rewrite all those parser again, right? Because those do not understand that, yes, you can have function inside a function. Oh, so it's just going to be a lot of work to update yeah. all those parsers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the worst case scenario is when you introduce something where it actually causes an ambiguity. That, and, and that's the one where you might not even notice. And I've seen it happen where we, we tried to add syntaxes to the ECMAScript standard, and it took a while for somebody to even notice, oops, that introduces an ambiguity. Oh, so there's not a way you can automatically detect that? There, that there is, is one of those fun uh, uh, computer science questions that uh, the general question of give me any grammar whatsoever and tell me if it's ambiguous is actually like it's mathematically impossible to build an algorithm that can give you that answer is in that finite time. the halting problem or something? Uh, yeah, through a, a series of really complicated uh, proof, but but Lots essentially it, got it ends up being like the <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it went through this classic problem called um, post correspondence problem or post. post uh, I'm forgetting it now. It was like PCP was the was the shorthand for it, but uh, I think that was the way it was proved, and then that can be reduced to the halting problem. Anyway, the the long story short is you can't write a general purpose. Uh, algorithm for any grammar, but for certain subclasses of grammars you can. And so that's why if you have a parser generator 
parser generator that works for a certain subclass of grammars. And there's all these different families that Tim alluded to earlier. Like there's LL grammars, LR grammars, LALR grammars. There are all these weird technical names for different subfamilies of grammars. Each one of those, you actually can produce an algorithm that can prove whether uh, a grammar is ambiguous or not. So, so typically, of, like the real parser generators can actually do that for you because they only operate on these subsets. So, how much of, of language design is limited by people um, trying by by the language designers trying to make their lives easier? Because I I look at it totally from the outside. Like I just want this feature, and I have no idea what it takes or what how how much work it'll be. It'll just be really cool. Does I does that happen a lot where you'll that. just reject things because they'll be really hard to implement? even if they'd be a cool or useful feature? I've, I've done that a few times. With my, my new language I'm designing, I have this constraint that it must be an LALR or whatever the default in JSON is grammar so that I can always use the generator to like check my grammar and make sure it's not ambiguous. And there have been many features that I wanted to add and the grammar's like, no, don't do that. And so I like move around the grammar definition and I cannot find a way to make it unambiguous and so I just don't allow that feature in the language. One that I've been having trouble with lately is is argument destructuring, which is a really cool feature, but it's kind of tricky to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, we've we've run into similar things with the Rust programming language, where again we were trying to keep it so that um, the syntax doesn't get too complicated, so that it's easy to build tools for Rust. Because that's like it, you have to remember when you're designing a language that you serve many many different customers, and certainly yourself as the implementer is one customer. But simplicity of implementation also affects tool writers, and those tool writers may not be yourself. And the more, the easier you make things for tool writers, the easier you ultimately make things for developers, because developers are going to use those tools too. So even though there might be something that kind of has an immediate benefit for a developer, because as a programming feature, it's nice, if it hurts the ability of, of tool writers to write tools, that could ultimately indirectly hurt developers, or in the longer run, hurt developers too. So there's, there's a lot of constraints you have to keep in mind at the same time. On the other hand, I tend to still be willing to violate even my own ground rules that I set for myself. Like, okay, we want to make it easier for tool writers, but oh man, this syntax is just too nice. <laughs> we'll, we'll make an exception <laughs> here and we'll make it a little harder for the tool writers. They'll still cope. Tool writers are smart people. They'll figure it out. I guess it's like an opportunity cost, right? Like if the yeah. syntax is nice enough that more people will use the language, then you'll have more tool writers and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, stuff is you're also predicting what people are going to do in 10 years. And, you know, like when my language actually takes the world by storm and a million people want to write <laughs> tools for it, uh, you know, that's so far into the future, it's actually hard to predict what it's going to look like. I, I want to go back to something that we have kind of talked about, but didn't really, um, we didn't talk about as far as like what it actually means so we talked about kind of what a grammar is but um how, how is a grammar actually defined this i'm glad you asked this because this is something that i think is really a great a, a great general purpose tool for for people to learn um and i think the analogy i want to make is for regular expressions so regular expressions are just this weird little language that people learn and i mean the first time you look at a regular expression, you think, okay, computer science people have really lost their minds. Like, this is the weirdest, most arcane little uh, thing I've ever seen. You know, that people talk about it as write once, read never. And it is a really weird little language, but it's so powerful and it's so concise that people use it constantly to the point where they just write little grep command lines and do little one-off regex because they're just so powerful. And so it's actually like it's worth it to put in that effort to learn regular expressions because it's so powerful. 
But it turns out that regular expressions are actually nowhere near as powerful as grammars are. Grammars are sort of the next step up in power for being able to describe a class of syntaxes. I mean, regex and grammars are really doing the same basic thing. They're saying, here's what a particular syntax should look like, and then you run a recognizer to actually parse it. The thing is that the, the class of syntaxes that a grammar can recognize is far, far more expressive than the class of, of things that a, a regular expression can. So it's worth it to learn the, the notation of grammars uh, because it's just so much more expressive. And then you can, once you kind of learn that, you can use that for all sorts of things. Like, for example, uh, if you want to create a new configuration file format for your application, uh, or you want to describe some network protocol where you're sending things encoded in strings uh, between, you know, over the internet. Um, there's all sorts of things where people need to describe uh, a syntax format, and regex are just not powerful enough to do the job. And the other cool thing about grammars is that they're still less powerful than just writing a regular program. Uh, and so there's sort of this nice sweet spot in between. So the notation is known as BNF. It stands for Bacchus Nauer Form, uh, named after two uh, famous computer scientists. And, uh, uh, and so taking the time to learn BNF, I think, is, is a really valuable skill for programmers to learn. And uh, how does one learn these arcane secrets of which you speak? <laughs> um, that's a good question. I think a, a lot of um, a lot of BNF is covered in. I, I think probably most compiler textbooks will cover BNF. Uh, you can probably get a lot of material just from googling it because it is it's such a common uh, tool in computer science that there's probably a ton of literature just online. The other thing is like to understand BNF. The BNF itself is almost like a tiny little programming language, and it's a really for the most part, a really simple little programming language. You basically define a bunch of functions and they can call each other. And that's, that's really all there is to it. The one hard thing that's conceptually tricky that, that you need to get your head around before you get to that point is to be able to think recursively. And that's, that's a skill a lot of people don't have. They aren't born with. It certainly took me a whole bunch of training before I felt comfortable with recursion. Um, and BNF grammars are defined, uh, all using recursion. So for that, I'll just throw out one textbook that I particularly love. Uh, it's not in JavaScript, so you have to be willing to play with an esoteric parenthesis-heavy language, uh, Racket, which is kind of a, a Lisp-like language or scheme-like language. Uh, but the book is called How to Design Programs, and their website is htdp.org. And their whole, the whole text of the, of the textbook is uh, freely available online. And that's a great introduction to thinking recursively. And I think it's a great precursor to being able to understand BNF. Yeah, that was but, one you know, of your picks uh, last time. Oh, was it? Okay. I guess I'm, yeah, I think I guess so. I'm uh, too obsessed with no, that book. Awesome. But I really do that's love it. That's a good sign. Uh, so it could be overkill. Like, if you feel that you already understand recursive functions, you actually shouldn't have too much of a hard time being able to read BNF, uh, being able to write BNF. And, and I would classic, just Google it. Classic example is write BNF for a math expression. So it has to understand, you know, different operators and their precedence. And you can try it to parse simple mathematical expression and see how it goes. Yeah, so yeah, my, pretty my, my understanding is, is that you define expressions and then you tell it how to recognize the expressions based on the tokens that make it up in a grammar. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, it basically what it does is it says, okay, I recognize this expression. And so then it takes the, the arguments to that expression and it breaks those expressions up into its 
uh, tokens, and that's that's how you get the abs- abstract syntax tree of your program. Right, and that's also where the recursion shows up, because to define what an expression looks like, well, an expression could be an addition expression, which has a plus in it, but it also has two other expressions. So the definition of an expression includes parsing another expression, or two other expressions. Right, and the, uh, the expression can be a, a single token, like a number, or it can be an, another expression, which is 10 times 10. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, that so, part's easy. The The hard part is sticking to the rules of whatever subset you're using. Like Some of them don't allow left recursion, and some of them, if you mm-hmm. don't have an operator precedence for your infix operators, then it just blows up. And so, I mean, intuitively, a BNF is very easy to read, but writing one is a little harder. Yeah, that's true, because the, the, the general rules of BNF actually don't prevent you from creating ambiguous grammars, and so uh, there's all these these subsets of, of the the possible grammars that prevent you from ever saying something, from ever writing an ambiguous grammar, but understanding the rules of how to stay within that subset is is much trickier, and that definitely takes some practice, and it uh, and it takes playing with the tools. Uh, this is actually something I mentioned before. The uh, the the research was kind of seen as done by the 80s or 90s. One of the things I think they didn't work on back then was really making the tools easier to use. So when it blew up, it would give you these just incomprehensible error messages and the state of the art in that hasn't gotten a whole lot better and that's something i would love to see people do more work on Mm -hmm. is okay we understand how parsers work but can we actually have parser generators that help you debug the problem when you made a mistake in your in your grammar the error messages you get in json the one that coffeescript and my language use they're useful but if you don't understand the the table that it's building internally they're utterly meaningless it's like in state 47, uh, I have this shift reduce conflict. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that means what? (laughs) This was my experience as well. So as as I switched from parser generator to recursive descent parser for a streamer, I found out that debugging is much simpler because you can just insert debugger somewhere and then watch the call stack and finally understand what's wrong there as opposed to some cryptic methods and there's no call stack at all. So, so tell me about recursive descent parsers. I have not yet figured these out. My plan is to write one after my grammar is stable. How do they work? Uh, I think, Dave, you, you want to explain that? Sure, I'm happy to give it a try. Um, actually, I think recursive descent parsers, even though the name sounds scary, are sort of like, uh, to my mind, they're the, they're the first way you would think to implement a parser. And, and they sort of follow the, the structure of the grammar most naturally. So if your grammar says that an expression can be either a number or an expression followed by the plus sign followed by an expression, then you write your recursive descent parser that just says, okay, let's look at the token. If it's a number, we're done. Return, you know, a, a literal node. Uh, otherwise, just recursively call the expression parser, then look for the plus token, then recursively call the expression parser. Now we've got three nodes, put them together, and you're done. And so yep. it's just sort of like a recursive function that does what the grammar says to do. Um, My favorite example is a go ahead. While, while statement in JavaScript, because while statement is pretty simple, you have a test and the body, and the entire construct itself is that you expect a keyword, while, and then it has to follow by uh, an open bracket, and then expression, close bracket, and then the statement. So in your parser, you simply write, Expect some keyword, expect this bracket, and then parse the expression. There, there where it goes uh, recursively to the other function. And then after that, you close it, and then go recursive again, parsing a statement. That's all you got for a while statements. 
So recursive descent kind of by itself is, I think, the, the, the cleanest and most natural way to write uh, a parser, um, you know, fo following the, the grammar that, that specifies what it's supposed to look like. Um, the, the couple places where it can get tricky are, first of all, um, when you deal with uh, infix operators, dealing with the precedence of those operators is tricky. So you have to know when to keep looking for more arguments and when to return. Um, so that, that part's a little bit tricky, um, but you can kind of follow your nose and figure it out. It's just, it's actually a fun problem to work on. Uh, but it, you know, it's a solved problem, but it's one of those that's fun to like, I'm not going to look up the answer. I'm going to see if I can write this program myself. The Didn't other Hartford, part, like... yeah, he has a, he has a, a paper on that, which is basically just showing here's one way you could write that algorithm that was published in the seventies. Here, here, here's one way you could write that in, in Java. Like if I was writing a parser in JavaScript that was doing precedence parsing. And that's, I mean, that's one way to do it. I actually found that code kind of hard to follow, but so, so precedence parsing can be one, one challenge. The other challenge is if you, if your, uh, if your language doesn't support recursion very well, then you can blow the stack if you have too deep of a, uh, mm -hmm. a nested program that you're parsing. So then actually taking your recursive program and turning it into one that's iterative that only uses loops and, and built-in stacks is kind of a, a royal pain. So for for a simple recursive descent parser where you don't really worry about it, where you're like, ah, if the if the input program gets too big, we'll just blow up, then you don't have to worry about it. But if you start doing things like um I think we ran into this with Emscripten, where we wrote it in JavaScript, which doesn't have very deep stacks. And Emscripten these days is parsing, you know, million plus line programs. And so there were times when it just fell over because of the size of the input. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that could so, happen. I just, I just never thought a program would be that big. <laughs> well, you, you when you think of a human writing it, you don't think of it being that big. But when you think of it as I got to parse any program that comes in, it could even be one that was generated by somebody else's code. Uh, suddenly it could, you could imagine it getting a whole lot bigger. So you could also definitely use a hybrid approach. Uh, in Esprima, for example, all the function block statements, I use recursive descent. But as soon as I hit uh, expression like binary and unary, then it switches to simple stack-based uh, parser. Uh, shift yeah, and unshift, and that kind of thing. So that's I think that's also head, the... Right? Yep, that's, that's the... Uh, the pattern that every JavaScript engine uses, I believe, even SpiderMonkey switched to that uh, trick, mm -hmm. just like in V8 and uh, JavaScript world. Yeah, and that makes sense because you you don't imagine that you're going to have so many deeply nested functions. I mean, you know, exactly. let's say your your stack blows out at three thousand. Do you imagine that you're going to have three thousand deep nested functions? <laughs> um, but you could imagine a really really big little operator expression, uh, particularly if it was one that was generated by some generated. other yep. compiler. Um, those could actually get deep quicker. Yeah. So I want to talk about this from the perspective of the, the humble JavaScript developer, someone who isn't a language implementer, because um, we have lots of experience with, I mean, Tim and, and Arya and David are, are all experienced with uh, language internals, I guess. But what, what does this stuff mean for someone who's just writing applications? Is this useful just in a general, like, the more you know, the better off you'll be kind of way? Or, or are there some practical um, benefits that you can get from knowing more about this stuff? As Dave alluded earlier, I always see that the benefit is more on the tooling side. 
yes, syntax tree is fun, but the fun part is what would you do with that, right? So the classic example is you build, you can build static code analysis like JSLIN slash JSLIN, or you could build the JavaScript minifier, uh, Uglyfy is the well-known example in, the, in this case. So it's really on you know, what kind of set of tools that people can build as soon as you get parser and those grammars and syntax tree. But I think another place that's good to, 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 to think about using, um, grammars and parsers for is that not every syntax is actually a full-fledged programming language. And, and the example I mentioned before is a config file format. And maybe you'll just reuse an existing config format like JSON or JSON plus comments, which we all wish JSON had. But, you, you know, little, little, little things like that crop up in programs a lot, especially if you're doing, uh, anything with external storage, you know, you're, you're saving some files on, on the file system or, uh, or network protocols where you're communicating between different things. And again, you can always reuse existing formats and, and then, you know, if you do it in JSON, you just reuse JSON.parse. But it does come up where it's like, well, you know, we need to write this and maybe JSON just isn't the right syntax for the people who are writing this, this file format. Uh, it needs to be handwritten and it needs to be in a format that we find easier to, to read and write. Or maybe JSON is too, uh, verbose and there's like some, uh, more concise syntax we can come up with. So I think these do, these things do come up and it's, it's a useful skill to have. And the other thing is that, like, I don't know if people have heard that famous, uh, Jamie Zawinski quote, uh, some people look at a problem and think, I know, I'll use a regex. And now they have two problems. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that quote, the, the inspiration for that quote is really that when a regex is the only tool you have, you start to think that it'll solve everything. And there are some things that a regex just isn't powerful enough to solve. And the next step up from regex is grammars. So it's good to know what the next step of power is up from regex so you can recognize better, oh, wait, in this instance, a regex is not the tool for the job. It's not the one that's going to solve my problem. That's the um, answer to all to those s- questions about parsing HTML with regexes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> not a regular language. The other thing, as as a humble JavaScript developer, right, like, I don't come from a computer science background, but so these kinds of things enable, like, the templating languages, like handlebars, right, uh, where you can even add kind of your own functions into these DSLs um, that we use in the web every day, like Angular, you can hook in and make your own directives, uh, but these are ways to hook into the compiler, and they end up being a lot more expressive. So as a humble JavaScript developer, you're using these kinds of things all the time, and understanding them better means you're going to be able to use them better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Another example I've had a couple is- Sorry, I'll just Sorry. I'll just give this example really quick. Another example is jQuery, where uh, you basically have something that, a lot like CSS embedded in a string, and and there are definitely arguments for and against doing that kind of thing, inventing inventing your own DSLs and embedding them in strings. But I think uh, jQuery has obviously gotten a huge amount of mileage out of that, and they never could have done that if they didn't have somebody who could write a parser for that embedded language. And you're referencing what's passed to the jQu- for the humble JavaScript developer. You're referencing what's passed to the job. The jQuery object, like whether it's an HTML string or a CSS selector, right? Right, exactly. So you say dollar sign of the string, you know, dot foo space dot bar or dot foo space mm-hmm. hash bar or whatever. Um, that's like this sure. little language that has a syntax and somebody had to, uh, write the, the parser to parse that string to be able to make jQuery work. And if you want to write the next jQuery, well, you're going to have to write a parser. 
Yeah, I've uh, I've had a couple situations in my career come up. We uh, implemented some needed to do some text searching. We used uh, Lucene to do that, and that has all this um, stuff around. You know, whatever you're indexing, the text you're indexing, you can get better information out of it if you write, you know, a custom uh, lexer and parser uh, using the tools that it provides and some other tools that are available. And so that really made a big difference to understand those concepts. And to be honest, at the time, I didn't understand them very well and got some introduction to them. Um, and also, you can solve some business problems with writing a DSL that isn't necessarily for programmers. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've done that before as well. One of the, the fun things, the next COBOL. One of the things I learned from the Lua community is they have a library called LPEG, which is basically, I guess it's a parser generator or maybe it's an interpreter, but you, you basically just give it grammars and then feed it strings. And it's like a more powerful regular expression engine, but they're not regular. They're full grammars and you get the tree as your match. And I, I always wish I had something like that in JavaScript readily available where I could just write a small grammar and match against it the same way I can just write a regular expression and match against it. Uh, you should totally yeah. write that. I'll do a Kickstarter for it. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Good idea. Are, are there any other aspects of this that we want to cover before we get to the picks? I guess one one thing I also wanted to point out is um, that uh, an AST is kind of like this key to uh, like a massively big, bigger kingdom of of things you can do in your program. It's like if I if I hand you the source code to some JavaScript. Well, we've got eval, so you can pass it to eval. But other than that, you know, regex, there's only so much you can do with regex. As soon as you can actually turn that into an AST, there's all sorts of, of interesting things you can do with, uh, with that data structure. Um, but on the other hand, it's good to have a healthy respect for, uh, just how complicated that space is. So like, you could write an interpreter for JavaScript with that. The AST, you could write a static analysis engine for JavaScript with that AST. You could write a compiler to compile the JavaScript to something else. And every one of those topics is like this big, huge topic that's really complicated and uh, incredibly fun and worth learning about. But also, like, I've, I've seen some people who kind of get their hands on an AST and they write their first static analysis and it's like totally broken. <laughs> So it's good to to recognize that these are these are complicated areas and fun topics to learn about, but also very big topics. Yeah, but very powerful topics. Like, for example, one thing I I had to do is write a something that lets you basically precompile handlebars templates, but also be able to dynamically pull in uh, partials, etc., from other files using AMD. The only way I was able to do that is get access to the handlebars abstract syntax tree and figure out what were partials, come up with a path, pull them in. So for someone who, who doesn't, you know, I'm not a programming language expert by any means, I was able to take advantage of this abstract syntax tree and add a whole another level of power to our application. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I'll call as uh, augmenting the existing syntax tree awesome. or features. Nice. All right, well, um, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up and uh, get us into the picks. Merrick, do you want to start us off with the picks? I'm just going to pick these guys that we're on the episode with because I this is like one of those episodes that's incredibly humbling and on you know being on the show with these guys is, is pretty awesome. So that's all, that's all I got. Awesome. Uh, Joe, what are your picks? So uh, a little bit ago, Origin had a sale and had Mass Effect 3 on for 10 bucks, and I haven't bought it and played it yet. I played the other ones. So I'm going to uh, pick Mass Effect 3. I've been playing it recently. really enjoyed it. 
Uh, also, there's a Coursera course that just barely launched this week. So by the time this gets published, it'll be like two weeks ago. But I think you can, you'd still be able to sign up for it. It's called a, a Beginner's Guide to Irrational Behavior, and it's done by Dan Ariely. I think that's how he pronounces his last name. And he's the guy who wrote uh, Predictably Irrational, which is a very popular book about human behavior and how irrational we are, although we're predictable at it. And it's a whole Coursera course about it, you know, I don't know if it's four or six weeks, but about human behavior, they call it a economic behavior or something. I can't remember what the scientific term for it is. Anyway, it's really, really interesting stuff. So I'm going to, I'm going to pick those two. All right, Tim, what are your picks? I don't know. I just think programming languages are fun. I don't really have any picks in particular other than it's, if you ever think programming gets boring, go write a language. <laughs> it won't be boring anymore. Nice. And you'll, you'll learn things about the language that you didn't ever realize, things you just took for granted. So yeah, I, guess, I guess that's my pick. Go, go write a language to learn one. <laughs> awesome. I think I'm going to go write RubyScript and coffee, and then I can get the same dumb questions that I get about <laughs> JavaScript. So, so JavaScript, is that Java? No. Coffee script, is that coffee? No. That's awesome. Anyway, um, who who hasn't given the picks yet? I, I guess I'll go, and then we'll have our guests go. Jameson, did you give us picks? I did not. Okay, we'll let we'll let Jame, Jameson go then. So I've got three. My first one is a dumb blog called Thumbs and Ammo. It's just a little Tumblr picture blog, and it's pictures of action movie stars where they take their guns and they Photoshop thumbs in place so it looks like they're giving people thumbs up <laughs> it's pretty awesome it made me giggle my other one is is totally a guilty pleasure um i make fun of dubstep a lot but then sometimes i i like fall into it anyways so it's this dubstep album called ism by savant i think is is the artist um it's kind of like chiptunes ish dubstep but it, it's totally like awful music it's still good to listen to though i enjoyed it and then my last one, I haven't been here in a while, and I came back again, and it was so good. I went to vimcast.org again, and I forgot how amazing um, his accent is. So if you use Vim and you want to learn more about it, and you also want to just be entertained by listening to someone speak English in a, in a, a great accent, go to vimcasts.org. Those nice. are my picks. Noise. All exactly. right. So I'm going to pick a couple of things. One of them is a little bit self-serving, and that is... Well, it's it's self-serving in the sense that it's something that I'm doing, but it's something that obviously I'm giving back to the community. We are starting the iFreak show next week, and that will be on um, iOS programming. So if you have an interest in that, then go to iFreakShow.com, and uh, the site should be up by the time this gets released. It's, it's not there now. But uh, anyway, go check it out. Um, we've got some awesome panelists, and it's going to be a lot of fun. My other pick is Mosey, and Mosey's actually a company that I used to work for. It's here in Utah, but uh, it's an online backup company. The thing that I really like about it is that um, I I know the algorithms that they use to store and everything because I did tech support for them, and I'm really comfortable with that and and the fact that my data isn't going to vanish from their servers, but it's also not here as a local backup, so I can use Time Machine on my Mac and get local backups but heaven forbid if somebody broke into my house and stole my my machine and and the hard drive with it or if the house burned down or something i wouldn't be totally out of luck all all the stuff that i've worked hard on is is still out there 
and I can just restore it to a new machine. So uh, I typically think that's it, it's a good idea to have a local backup and a remote backup, and then you're just covered for all the just-in-cases. David, what are your picks? All right, my first pick is the uh, micro-USB cable that I bought from Walgreens because my I lost my last cable, and the, the only one they had was bright pink. And so I needed one, so I just bought it, and I had no idea what a benefit it would be to have a bright pink micro-USB cable because wherever I go, I never forget it. It's always the, the most noticeable thing in the room, so I never walk out without it. Nobody's going to steal it as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I have other... some kids that would like it. <laughs> uh, my other pick is something that I'm super excited about. We've we've been working on this in my group at, at Mozilla Research, along with the uh, the Mozilla uh, JavaScript Engine team, and we just uh, put out our first release of this subset of JavaScript called ASM.js or ASM.js. And what ASM is, is basically we've just said, look, here's a subset of JavaScript. It's totally just JavaScript. It works in every JavaScript engine. But if you, if you can generate code in that subset, we can optimize it like nobody's business. And so what we did was we worked with the, uh, the game company Epic, who make the Unreal game engine, and we helped them port their Unreal Engine 3 to the web and uh, we're talking about over a million lines of C++ code being ported to JavaScript through the Inscripten compiler and generating ASM.js on the on the the back end, and showed that in the latest nightly builds of Firefox, it gets performance that feels exactly like native performance. So there's there's a, a little YouTube video of it online where you can you can see some of the flythroughs. Uh, we haven't actually released any of those demos. I think at least one of them is going to be released publicly where people can play with it. Yeah, I was going to ask, when can I play Unreal Tournament in my browser? <laughs> so I think they're just I saw the GDC be, videos, but... Yeah, I think they're just going to be demos. I don't think there's actually going to be like an Unreal full game that's released, but I'm not sure about that. But anyway, it's a, it's a technology demonstration. We're just trying to show that the web is actually ready with no plugins to, to, to run games the same way native can. And with Asm.js, we're, we're closing the gap to native performance um, to, to the point where our, our, our benchmarks are showing we're within uh, 50% of native speed at this point. So I'm very excited about, uh, about what we're showing the web can do. Interesting. All right. Uh, Aria, what are your picks? So my first is related to that Coursera course about human behavior. It's a book called Beyond Office Politics, The Hidden Story of Power, Affiliation, and, and Achievement in the Workplace from Linda Sommer. So this tells you why a person behaves certain ways and how you can you know, uh, work together with that person once you know their motivation and objectives. Very fantastic uh, book, typically for engineers to understand the social interaction between people. So the second one is a library that I'm having fun with. It's called Library in a Tool. It's called Istanbul from, from Yahoo. It's a JavaScript code coverage and it tells you exactly what code, what part of the code that you didn't test. Uh, that includes all the branches and statements and function and so on. So famous quote from DevGlass from Yahoo, YUI team. If you think Jaslyn hurts your feeling, wait until you use Istanbul. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sounds great. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks for coming, guys. It's been a really yeah, thank interesting you so much. Uh, talk about this. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, we'll be on next week. 
Well, you guys will be on next week. I'm going to be gone next week. But uh, we'll see you all in a week or two. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone.